Welcome to Season 8 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and through our partnership with Last Word on Sports Media Podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. Their motto is simple. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. This week, we feature former major leaguer, current baseball analyst, and proud native of Chicago, Curtis Granderson. If this would have been home for part of my career, I don't know how I would have been able to handle all that because some people say playing at home isn't always as cracked up as you think it would be. And at the early part of my career, I feel it would have been a tough adjustment. Towards the later part of my career, all my friends and family had already seen me play. They had started their families. Everybody was moving on. I wasn't getting the demand that I nearly did before. So I think it would have been a lot easier to handle it towards the end of my career. He is one of the most respected people in the game. Curtis Granderson's off-the-field achievements are as important as what he's accomplished on the field. From his role as president of the Players Alliance to founding Chicago's Baseball and Educational Academy to developing the Grandkids Foundation, Granderson's impact has been significant. He played for seven big league teams, including both in New York, but neither in his hometown of Chicago what gives? So, Curtis Granderson, tell me a story I don't know. So the story about that great background, thank you for, for laying it out about the history, almost didn't happen. I got drafted out of UIC in 2002 as a junior. I start playing in the New York Penn League, played very well. The next year, I'm in the Florida State League, also make the all-star team there, but mentally, I just wasn't having it. If you've ever been down to the Florida State League in the middle of Florida during the summertime, it is not a fun league to be there. It's hot, it's humid, and there's no fans. And I had a lot of friends of mine who had graduated from UIC that were on doing bigger or better things that I thought. I was like, you know what? I could be at home in Chicago enjoying this. So I was ready to hang up my spikes in 2003 and made it through that season, decided to see it to the end. My dad always said, once you start something, you got to finish it. And then at the end of the year, you can make a decision. So we got to the end of that year, and what's crazy, the next year in 2004, I made my Major League debut. So I was that close to quitting. We wouldn't be sitting here talking about it now, but skidding through the end, got up, and then we had the rest of the history, which gave you the great bio that you were able to lead with. Speaking of your dad, and I'm going to digress for just a moment, you just saw him for a pretty good reason, a very, very nice award. Yeah, my dad and I made the road trip back to Detroit where my career started, a Willie Horton African-American Legacy Award during their Negro Leagues weekend where they pay homage to the Detroit Stars, Norm Turkey Stearns, just to name a few of those great Negro League greats. And it was just awesome to be there uh, because Willie Horton was one of the first individuals that took me underneath his wing as a special advisor for the Detroit Tigers. He came to Oneonta, New York, where I had started my career in the New York Penn League. <laughs> And my mom and dad were actually in town. We were out. We were going to go for breakfast. And if you've ever been to Oneana, which is just outside of Cooperstown, it's a very small town. There's not much there. There's one place that we went for breakfast. So Willie took me there and we start chatting about all things baseball, life and everything in between. And he basically adopted me as his grandson and mm -hmm. still to this day calls me son and sends me happy holiday messages. So 
When I was told I was getting that award, I was excited to do it and glad my dad was able to make the trip with me. He was a heck of a player and a heck of a personality. He definitely was. I mean, he tells some amazing stories. And he was also involved in the civil rights movement. You know, he was out there when they were doing the protest in, in Detroit. And he said what was crazy is he has the big game in the World Series 68, I think it is. Yes. Where he throws out Lou Brock at home plate. Javier. Curveball hit hard out in the left field. It's in there for a base hit. Horton may have a shot at box. Here comes the throw. Don Worth lets it go. And he runs over three and they got it. They end up winning the World Series. He comes home, and on his front lawn, there is a burning cross. Mm. And, you know, it just shows just how crazy life has been, still could be. And he was just out there trying to play baseball, and people still weren't happy with him for a number of different reasons. But those are some of the types of stories that he talks about, and that's just so amazing to get a chance to be in his presence to just hear him talk. As a native of Chicago, a guy who still lives here, are you disappointed you never played for the Cubs or the White Sox? Yes and no. I would have loved the opportunity to have had a part of my career, whether it was the beginning, the middle, or the end, for either one of the two teams. You know, it's in my backyard. I live so close to, to both places. And when we would play here, I would just stay at home and I would drive to the stadium. I would drive home. I would see friends and family. We would go out and eat, have a good time while I was here. But the reason I say no Part of it after that two, three or four game series in town to play either one of the two teams, I would be so exhausted. So I was trying to see everyone and do everything and try to get it all in in a matter of that short window of that series that literally I would be on the bus ride heading from the stadium to the airport. And if we weren't in any traffic, I would fall asleep quick and look forward to being thankful I got a chance to do it, but excited I'm finally leaving so I can get a little bit of rest. So if this would have been home for part of my career, I don't know how I would have been able to handle all that because some people say playing at home isn't always as cracked up as it, you think it would be. And at the early part of my career, I feel it would have been a tough adjustment. Towards the later part of my career, all my friends and family had already seen me play. They had started their families. Everybody was moving on. I wasn't getting the demand that I nearly did before. So I think it would have been a lot easier to handle it towards the end of my career. You know, you're in pretty darn good shape right now. I think there's a team on the south side who could use a left-hand hitter. Hey, I'd love an opportunity. <laughs> I haven't picked up a bat in so long. I'll just be there for moral support or maybe to go up there and hopefully draw a walk if I could do that. You donated $5 million towards the building of the field named after you at UIC, the University of Illinois at Chicago, where you starred in college. I've been there many times. It's a gem. So what prompted you to do that? It's awesome. Actually, you know, the Detroit stuff paved the way for a lot of what you see now. I'm playing in Detroit. It's 2009. And Wayne State University, which has a really nice baseball program just north of where the Tigers play, they had reached out to me and said, hey, we're trying to do something here where we want to get some kids in the summer to stay in the dorms, play midnight baseball, get some college credits try to just help mix and match baseball and studies and continue to provide all these opportunities, especially in an area where the crime was so high. I mean, Detroit's one of the top crime cities in the U.S. annually, and especially at the time when I was playing there. And the high school graduation rate was only at 50%. So they had threw this idea at me, and I loved it. I loved everything about it. I was ready to jump all in, and then I got traded. So I come home 
And head coach, Coach Mike D, who was the one that recruited me, was still the coach at the time. I tell him about this great opportunity that was ahead of me. He goes, well, I know you got traded, but Chicago's home. This isn't going to change. I said, you're absolutely right. So we started talking about ideas. It didn't pan out exactly the way that that story was going to be. But with the donation to UIC, one of the reasons why I made it is I wanted an opportunity to get a lot of kids in the area, an opportunity to play, practice, and train on a college campus. Because what's so amazing, and George, you mentioned it, you've been there and you've seen the facility. We have kids that live walking distance from that stadium and the campus that have never stepped foot on a college campus. So it's kind of ironic and crazy to think about that. And through baseball as a vehicle, we bring these kids from around 60 different communities all throughout the Chicagoland area to be on the field for a number of reasons, whether they're having a clinic, whether they're playing a game, whether they're just having some fun out there. And all the while, they're finally getting a chance to get onto a college campus, a lot of them for the first time. And that's where it all came about. And I'm glad I've been able to continue to help in a number of ways to provide a a great place. I arguably say we have the best view in Chicago baseball-wise, better than the White Sox, better than the Cubs, because they all don't get the skyline. But at UIC, we do. Well, I was just thinking about that as you were mentioning that, because it's an extraordinary view. And I've been to some major league parks. The Tigers have a pretty good view. The best, in my opinion, is Pittsburgh. That is breathtaking to see downtown Pittsburgh and the Allegheny and the way they had set that up. But you're right. I mean, when you turn around and you see downtown Chicago while you're playing baseball, it can be distracting. It can be distracting. It can be exciting. It can be motivation. So for a lot of these kids that are getting a chance to do it, this might be the best field that they ever get a chance to play on. So for that side of it, I use that as motivation. Of course, we sneak the education in right behind it, but also for the university. Live from Chicago, ESPN presents... Missouri Valley Baseball as the UIC Flames take on the Indiana State Sycamores. Good afternoon and welcome to Curtis Granderson Stadium. I'm Jonathan Hood. UIC is coming off. You know, it's a great recruiting tool, and especially once people step on the field or up into the suite level, which is just above top, and they go, wow, I didn't know this was here. And that's the part that I think is really exciting, the fact that a lot of people don't realize that we have UIC. UIC has a baseball program, even though it's a school that has almost 35,000 undergraduate students. A lot of people don't realize that there are athletics there and very good athletics at that. Baseball, softball, tennis, soccer, basketball historically have all been very good. And getting a chance to watch a game there when it's not too cold in April is a great place to go ahead and spend a, a summer day there. I'm not going out there in March and April. Those days are over for me, but I'll gladly go out there and enjoy a game in the warmer months. And we actually have a great youth tournament coming up here at the end of July, beginning of August, where we're going to get some of those younger communities, 12U and 14U and for the first time softball out on the facility to to play. And it's, it's really cool that they get a chance to do it in their own backyard. So how did you wind up at UIC when you were recruited by a lot of schools? So the heavy ones that recruited me were UIC, Northern Illinois, and Illinois State. And being in Chicago, basketball was still one of the top sports in the city, just like a lot of the other ones. But I was coming up in an age where I played against so many different amazing basketball players, a lot of which had made it to the NBA. Eddie Curry, Dwayne Wade, Melvin Eli, Ty Streets, Darius Miles, Quentin Richardson, Paul McPherson, all these players, uh, Leon Smith, I had got a chance to play against at some point in time. So 
they're all talented. In my mind, I'm just as talented as they are. So I wanted the opportunity to play basketball as well as baseball in college. And all I wanted was an opportunity to walk on the team. If I wasn't good enough, I just wanted the coach to tell me, hey, son, you know, basketball isn't it for you. But I would be there to play baseball. Illinois State told me firsthand, nope, you're not going to have an opportunity to do it. So I took them off the list. So it came down to Northern Illinois and UIC. And one of the things that Coach D, the head baseball coach, did on my visit, he got me a sit-down meeting with the then head basketball coach, Jimmy Collins. And Jimmy Collins told me, he said, yeah, we'll, we'll get you in here. We'll work you out. I'll even help you get into a summer league so you can get prepped and ready for practice and tryouts. And that's all I needed. And that's why I ended up signing at UIC. It was an opportunity to do both. And what's funny is I only got one official basketball practice as a UIC flame. What? So when everything was going to officially start, I was gonna go to baseball practice after practice, I would shower, change, and go straight to basketball practice. That baseball practice, I'm the runner at second base, and we're working on pickoff plays at second. So they do the pick the second base. I dive into the base. The shortstop fell on top of me, and as we both went to get up, I ended up tearing a ligament in my thumb, and that ended my basketball career as a UIC flame. But I did get a chance to practice one day, and I said, you know what? I'm here on baseball. Let's see what happens with the baseball. On top of all of that, having played at UIC and then donating $5 million to have the stadium built and named after him, Curtis Granderson also delivered the commencement speech at UIC in 2019. Now graduates, before you walk outside these doors with that degree in hand, I have one final question for all of you. How many of you are nervous, scared, excited, to become a college graduate. I see you right there, there we go. If I was asked that same question when I sat in these seats, just like all of you on my graduation day, I would have had both hands up, high to the sky. When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution, Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates. You'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vent. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duck works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless, and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duck, 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. You spent the first six years of your career with the Tigers, and I certainly have a memory of Detroit, and I'm sure you have a kind of a different one, and that would have been near the end of the 2005 season when the White Sox clinched the division title then on their way to the World Series. Line drive, caught it first, and that's the ball game. They are celebrating on the south side. Back in the postseason for the first time since 2000, the Chicago White Sox are the 2005 American League Central Division champions. 
Was there any touch of envy that you were on the other side when one of the home teams won the division? Uh, no envy on them winning the division. You know, I'm still trying to settle and get my feet attached and anchored as a major league player. Cause in 2005, at this point, I only had about 70 days in the major leagues, but towards the end of that 2005 season, as the white Sox were trying to finalize and clinch that they're playing us in Detroit. And I end up hitting a walk-off home run with about five games left into the season. And all those friends and family of mine that were coming out to games were messaging and reaching out going, don't you remember where you play for? What are you doing? Where are you from? You're from Chicago. I go, yeah, I'm from Chicago, but I don't play for Chicago. I got to do what I got to do. But luckily the White Sox were still able to get themselves in and go on to win the World Series. So that home run wasn't the end all be all, but it definitely made everybody get a little bit anxious and could have been maybe the, the excitement and motivation they needed to go ahead and clinch and, and make that run like they did. I mentioned kiddingly that you played for both New York teams and you did not play for both Chicago teams. Can you p- compare the fandom? Because I know it's pretty rabid with the Yankees and the Mets as it is with the White Sox and Cubs. Yeah, it's very unique. You know, arguably the the most popular baseball team around the world are the New York Yankees. And to the point where you see them referenced in movies and musics and songs and you see Yankee hats around the world. So it's a very popular team and rightfully so. So joining that team and especially at the time when I did where the big four were about to wrap up their careers with Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit and Jorge Posada was just awesome to, to be there. And I didn't understand the how big it was until we finally started playing on the road. We would go to the road ballpark, and the way it works is the home team takes batting practice first around 4 o'clock for a 7 o'clock game. The gates open at 5 o'clock where the fans can start entering the stadium. The second or the away team takes batting practice around that same time, and then everyone comes off the field around close to 6, and then we get ready for the game. Throughout the course of my career with the Tigers, I hadn't really seen it as much until I saw this, the volume of fans coming into the stadium at five o'clock to watch us hit batting practice was unheard of because most of the fans want to be there for the home team. But those Yankees fans would travel very well. They would come there and after we'd finished batting practice, they'd start clapping and applauding. And I just was like, it's only six o'clock. We haven't started the game. Why is everyone so noisy and excited? So that's where it was amazing to see from the Yankee fan side of things, but it was it was awesome to see. The payoff. Grounded softly, first base side. Granderson is five for five. Didn't get the home run, but what a night for Granderson. Five hits and five at bats. Now I get I signed free agent with the Mets, and I'm over there for four years. And what's funny is prior to that, so almost four years with the Yankees and four plus years with the Tigers, I didn't know much about the Mets. We had played the Mets once in interleague with the Tigers. We had played the Mets during the Subway Series. But outside of that, we were focused on the American League Central with the Tigers or the American League East with the Yankees. So I didn't know much about the Mets. I had played against David Wright in the minor leagues. And now him and I are teammates. And what was really cool to see was just the passion of the fans that were blue and orange as i mentioned before the popularity of the yankee team is there but there's a popularity because that's a a lot of it is obviously tradition and history but you'll have a lot of people that'll just say you know what i bought a new york hat 
and they'll put on the hat and it's a Yankee hat because that's kind of what you're supposed to do. They're not a fan of the team, but they have the hat. But if you see someone with that blue and orange Mets hat, that wasn't by mistake. That is a fan of that team and organization and they know a lot about it. So there's a lot of passion there for the Mets side of it. And it was really cool to see both sides of it for eight years. What deep right field. Back goes Soriano looking up. It's out of here. Granderson with another home run. A three-run shot. And the Mets score four in the opening inning. There's definitely similarities to both cities. Uh, New York, it's definitely a Yankees town. There's obviously a lot of Mets fans. But it's a Yankees town because of their history, as you mentioned. And here in your hometown of Chicago, it's definitely a Cubs town, even though there's a lot of White Sox fans. It's been a Cubs town almost forever, and there's a good reason for that, and you know it. You know, part of it is, is, is how the game was brought to us historically. You know, WGN was a nationally broadcast mm-hmm. station that got you a chance to see the Cubs. Whether you liked them or not, they were probably being broadcast in your backyard. That's a fly ball, beat the left, back, back, that's it, that's it, got number 500 a line drive shot into the seats and left the ball tossed to the bullpen everybody on your feet this is it and then the yankees just being in the number one media market and arguably the world got a chance to see them for such a long period of time so they they rode that wave and they still ride it and that's why you have so many fans on that side but there still is that other team in both those cities the with the mets and the white sox and the loyalty of those are the ones that had just knew the team, found out about the team, fell in love with the team, and still love the team to this day. So it's slightly different because you don't have that national or international appeal, but there's still just as much love for both sides. I'm not sure how many people realize you had 344 homers in your career. You had 1,800 runs batted, and you were just shy of 1,000 RBIs. Rather, 1,800 hits in 1,000 RBIs. You played 64 postseason games, including two World Series. I'd say, Curtis, that's a pretty darn good career. It is, especially considering it almost didn't happen. And the fact that I got a chance to, to do it for that long and outside of possibly wanting to quit in 2003, even when I got drafted, I thought I would play for maybe two to three years in the minor leagues then get released and then go ahead and put my degree to work and and start to work in some form or fashion, whether it was in sports or in education or a combination of the two. So to think back and hear numbers like that and think about 16 seasons and seven teams and some of those stats, you know, I dreamt about as a kid, okay, if I could just hit one home run, that'd be great. And they kept letting me come back and I got a chance to play for all those teams and hit a lot more than just one. So it was really cool. And something I'll always look back on and go, wow, you know, that actually happened. But it's true uh, sign of you know hard work and dedication really paying off because a lot of people told me things I couldn't do. So I use that as motivation to say, okay, well, if I can't do that, I got to find a way to figure out how to do it. And that was how I started to do a lot of my work. I recently interviewed Doug Glanville, whom I'm sure you know for this podcast. And the two of you have several things in common, not the least of which is intellect and desire to make those, those around you better but you also grew up with parents who were in academia. And I've got to believe that really helped to shape who you are. Definitely think so. You know, when you have parents that come from the educational background, the first thing you get asked is how strict were they? Was it was it tough to, to do the academic side of it with both parents being teachers? And both my parents looked at it this way. They said, as long as I put the effort in, they would be satisfied with it. Yes, there are certain requirements that the school provides for you. And we hope that you can do better than that. But I just want to hear the effort. I don't want to come in and say that 
you didn't turn in this paper or you didn't show up or you didn't put in the, the amount that we expect from you. That's when I would get in trouble. But as long as I put in the effort, they were fine on that. And I also knew the importance of it. You know, education provided so many opportunities for my family. And I was coming up through those ranks where I knew if I wanted to play on these teams, if I wanted to be a part of these clubs, if I wanted to hang out with my friends, I had to get my academics done first. So that was also motivation, but I also enjoyed the different things that I picked up along the way and have been able to share with others, just bits and pieces, either I memorized, learned, or are continuing to still learn to this day. You grew up in the south suburbs of Blue Island and Linwood. I have to believe you were athletically inclined at an early age. Yes, and 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 no. I think part of it was just as a, a young boy, you have a lot of energy. And my dad, he played 16-inch softball here in Chicago. He's actually in the, the Softball Hall of Fame here. That's great. Yeah, he also played college basketball. So there's some genes there. And I think even my mom said she ran track back in high school. So I think as part of it, you know, you get the your, your child out there and let them run around and hopefully burn off some energy. And then you introduce things to them. So I have pictures of myself with a football or with a basketball or with a wiffle ball, baseball as a young kid, because those were gifts that were given to me, whether by my parents or by family friends. So then I either I'm seeing it on TV and then I'm practicing it or my parents are out there playing with me. I don't know exactly how it happened, but I think having a few of those items around gave the opportunity to say, okay, let's see you run and let's see you run after the ball. Let's see you swing this, but let's also see you swing it at the ball versus just at the couch or at the table or something like that. So I think that's kind of how it unfolded. And it just continued to keep growing from there because I enjoyed it. I, I, I had fun doing it. And as we know, as kids, if you enjoy doing it, you're going to want to continue to keep doing it. I think it's great that your dad is in the softball hall of fame and people just may not be able to understand what that sport was like. When I was growing up, there were softball fields everywhere in Grant Park. There would be leagues on Saturdays and Sunday mornings. They must have had a, a dozen fields there. And of course, softball, we're talking about 16-inch softball, the clincher. There are no gloves. Tough sport for me to play because my hands were small. But man, they could hit the ball really hard. And I just marveled at some of the guys, especially the guys who played at third base and first base. They are catching this ball that's hit very hard and thrown very hard. And there were a lot of broken fingers, I can guarantee you that. Guys who have played the game, they'll show you their hands. Everybody's got a one-up story. Oh no, I broke this finger here. Well, I broke this finger here. I've dislocated one and I've popped the thumb out, but we popped it back in and just kept taped it up and kept playing. You're, you're bound to, at some point in time, jam a finger, uh, break a finger. You know, just have to kind of pull it out and away you go. That's an easy way to tell if somebody's played 16 inch softball. Look at, <laughs> yeah, look at their joints fingers. are moving left and right. They got swollen knuckles still. To <laughs> but, but it's crazy. And it also shows what Chicago is in comparison to some of the other cities where a lot of cities really rely on the Boys and Girls Club or the YMCA. But here in Chicago, and I heard this from someone who worked for the park district, is we, we relied on the Chicago park districts. And in those park districts, like you said, there were parks not only in the city, but in the surrounding suburbs where there were all these fields. And in those fields, a lot of them had softball fields and you played softball and it was co-ed and it was female only and it was male only. And you, you were out there you know, playing it. I would watch it. My dad would always bring me there with him. And I would always marvel at the fact that how far they can swing and hit these balls. Like I would try to practice with them and never came close. And even now, I don't think I have the ability to hit the ball 
like I saw some of the adults hitting it back when I was a kid. It's just a different type of swing and strength and being able to do that. But I always enjoyed watching it. And I think even being around that, you know, I got the competition side of it and the fun of just being around the game of softball, which was very similar, of course, to the game of baseball. If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. We resume with Curtis Granderson on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Now let me tell you a story about Curtis and me you don't know, and I actually had to remind Curtis about this. We do have a connection, and it isn't just growing up in the Chicago area. This was the 2008 Pitch and Hit Club Awards Dinner. I was given the Personality of the Year Award, and you were the Player of the Year. I still have my bat. Do you? Yes, I just don't have it at my house. My parents have it. Uh, they're, they're the ones that keep a lot of things like they have my old bowling trophies, my track ribbons, my first basketball trophy, my first t-ball trophy. And they also have a lot of the, the more recent ones, such as that pitch and hit bat. They still have the Roberto Clemente Award at the house. I can't get that one from them. that's the one I want to get here. But my parents are still holding on to that one. And I got no problem letting them keep it. But the pitch and hit club was great. You know, I appreciate them honoring me. Uh, for that side of it. I had, I had received, I think, the minor league award one time, and then now I'm in the major leagues. I get the major league player of the year award. So it's really cool. And I met so many great players, Andre Dawson for the first time, Bob Feller, Maury Wells um, at these events. And mm-hmm. it's really cool, you know, that what they were been able to do. Tell me about life after baseball, because you became an analyst for TBS, which you are still doing now. And if I'm not mistaken, you were doing this while you were playing. I did. I got the opportunity to to do a couple games after some seasons where we didn't make it to the playoffs. ESPN and TBS gave me an opportunity to pop in for two days or four days during the playoffs. And I jumped in and I had some really cool people to do it with. Frank Thomas, Dennis Eckersley, David Wells, Dusty Baker, um, Cal Ripken and the legendary Ernie Johnson. So. I got my feet wet with it while playing. And then I was fortunate to be on a lot of teams where we did make it to the postseason. So I, you know, I had to postpone it for a while. But once the career was starting to come to an end, I was thinking about it because I enjoyed it. You know, anytime you get a chance to watch baseball and talk about baseball and get paid to do it, you know, why not why not look into it? So TBS gave me an opportunity to jump right into it the year I retired, but the year I retired was 2020. So COVID had run and was crazy and the baseball season was modified so my first time back in doing it was that year but still had a a ton of fun doing it and now here we are I head down to Atlanta every Tuesday to do a game in studio and then we cover the division series and the championship series on TBS which has been a lot of fun and now here he is about to take his team to the World Series. And it's great. You get a chance to see truly that this is a game of adjustments. You heard them say that the Braves had everything to go for it in the second half. It wasn't clicking on all cylinders in that first half, but they made the moves they needed to at the trade deadline to give them everything they needed. You're such a natural at doing this, so why don't you do it more often? 
I don't want to take too much time away from it because I definitely know that can add, but it's always hard to subtract and you never want to be in a spot where, hey, this is too many. So I was like, let me start with this one game a week. I think it's good. Plus the postseason. And I've been fortunate. I've had a lot of postseason where the, the series have gotten swept. I know for TV wise, you want to go ahead and see seven games. But for work wise, I only got to do four games or maybe three games if it's a five game series. So it's it hasn't been too demanding to, to make that transition out. And who knows, I might do a little bit more of it. Uh, but just want to make sure because I stay busy with just so many other different things that I'm not taking on too much and also get a chance to enjoy just the city of Chicago. One of the things I was looking forward to was Chicago summers and throughout the course of my career, especially since I didn't play here in Chicago, all those summers were spent away from home. Fourth of July, Labor Day weekend, Memorial Day weekend, all these concerts, all these fests, all these different events. Now I'm finally here and getting a chance to do it. So I definitely want to take advantage of that as well. We're more than halfway through the season. So what do you think of the new rules and particularly the pitch clock? I really enjoy it. I think the thing with baseball and sports in general, we can't be afraid of change. And there's nothing wrong with trying to see if it works. And if it doesn't work, we can always go back. But let's not just be so resistant to it. And I, I love the fact that the games are being sped up. Hopefully it's not at the detriment of the hitters or of the players or of the pitchers, but I have heard more positive than negative, uh, but there's definitely could be some tweaks to it. But I think the biggest rule that I think nobody's that, that few people are talking about is the fact that everyone finally plays everybody. It always amazed me that 162 games, we don't play everybody. I get it in football and football, you're only playing 16, 17 games. So just mathematically, we can't do it, but in basketball and in hockey, they play half as many games and everybody plays it, everyone at least one time. So you figure that model should work with baseball. And I feel it's a great way to make a change that doesn't modify things, but allows you to easily grow the game. Because I, I, I saw a tweet, I think last year, where the, the Yankees had played in Milwaukee for the first time in six seasons. So if you think about that, if that didn't happen last year, the Milwaukee Brewers fan base wouldn't have seen Aaron Judge on his record-breaking season, his MVP season. And how do you have that happen in a game where they're playing so many games? So I'm so excited the fact that everyone finally gets a chance to play everyone. It easily and organically allows you to grow the game because the best players are going to eventually come and play against your team. So if I either go to the stadium, I can see them firsthand, or I'm hopefully fortunate enough to be able to watch them on TV, I can see them. But if it's not happening in that case, and I have to wait six seasons in some cases, the next time it happens, that team may be completely different. And some of those players might not be on that team. So that's one of the ones that I really enjoy. That I'm happy to see, and I'm excited that everyone gets a chance to play against all the other teams. And these days, the player that everybody wants to see is Shohei Otani. Shohei takes the first pitch and sends it deep to right field. Garcia drifting and it's gone! He struck out the side. First pitch to Otani. There's a drive to right field. Calhoun turns his back and it's out of here! When this podcast drops on the 2nd of August, it's the trading deadline will have passed. So here we are. What do you think? Who could possibly be the big sellers? Who could be the big buyers? Because this has been a season of a lot of disappointing teams. 
You know, I, I think what happens you know, when you go into the excitement of the beginning of the season, the days are over where you can just go in and have your history be the reason why you're success. Just because you were good last year or good for the last few years doesn't automatically translate to success. And I think it's also a great way of showing that the development of the organization, understanding what works and getting a group of core young players together that can win in the minor leagues and also come to the major leagues at the same time and win there can be a key to success. Spending is great, but we still have to spend in the right way. So we're seeing two top two teams spend a lot of money that aren't doing very well in the Mets and the Padres. We've seen two teams that haven't spent a lot that are doing very well in the Marlins and the Rays. But there's also teams that spend and they're still doing very well. So I think if we had to look at this year, who's going to be some teams that are going to be buyers or sellers, sellers, the Orioles are in a very good position because not only are they playing very well, so they can hopefully add, but they also have a very strong minor league system. Some of those players have already made it to the major league, so hopefully they'll continue to stick around, but they have more players coming behind it. When you have a lot of young and up-and-coming players that the league as a whole value, now you have some, some ability to go ahead and try to get what you want. So I think they could definitely be some buyers. Unfortunately, here in Chicago, I think both mm. the Cubs and the White Sox could be sellers. And you have players that I know that the fan bases have grown to love and enjoy. But again, on both sides of those teams, they just aren't there yet. But a lot can change between now and the end of the month. But they got to get hot and they got to get hot quick. You are involved in a lot of projects away from baseball. As we mentioned, the Open President of the Players Alliance, though that is part of baseball, I should say. Take me through what that's all about. The Players Alliance was started, unfortunately, on the heels of 2020 and George Floyd and what happened uh, in his untragic death. Players came together saying that we got to do more than just post something on social media. How do we collectively start to do things that we've been talking about for decades and even generations before we played this game with greats like Willie Horton, who we talked about earlier, Dave Winfield and Frank Robinson, all trying to see more and more change in this game to just make it a place where there's more opportunities to not only play it, to be involved in it, to work in it, to watch it, to grow it. And that's where the Players Alliance was started. Founding board member Edwin Jackson serves as one of our uh, board members, uh, vice chair CeCe Sabathia, and I serve as the board chair for the Players Alliance. And we've been doing a lot of different things across baseball, both domestically and internationally, just trying to continue to be in that space to help players continue to grow their platforms of different things they're doing, provide opportunities for the younger generation going, and then also being there as mentors and motivators for the next generation of players that are going to college or have just recently been drafted or are about to make their debuts into the major leagues. So they have a little bit of knowledge to allow themselves to stick and stick around for a very long period of time. You also established the uh, Baseball and Educational Academy. And I know that you're well aware the number of um, African-Americans in Major League Baseball has really, really dwindled decidedly over the last Gosh, I'd say 30 years. I know Kenny Williams has tried hard with the ACES program, but you're also involved at the grassroots level. You know, it's interesting. You know, it's unfortunate that we saw the numbers that we did this opening day season. I think there were six major league teams that opened without an African-American player on the team. And last year in the World Series, we had two teams that played each without an African-American player on the team. So 
especially from where the game was to where it is now, you have to start looking at, okay, why is that happening? Because there are a lot of kids that are playing at a young level, but they drop off drastically between the ages of 12 and 13. I think it's almost in between the ages of six and 12 kids of all races, all ethnicities throughout the United States play at a clip of about three point, I want to say 6 million kids play in that age group. As soon as we go to 13, from 13 to 18, that number drops by about 2 million. And now we have to start figuring out why that is. So are there other interests? Absolutely. There are things now more popular than they used to be ever before. But we also run into a space where the older you get, the the only opportunities you have to play is you have to pay. And if you just want to play the game, even not at a high level, a lot of those opportunities have been taken away or are no longer there for you. Pricing of these situations are very difficult. It's to the point now where I have some family friends that have told me they're thinking about getting an RV for their children to play travel baseball because it makes more sense for them price-wise to do that than going to all these tournaments and paying for all these hotels and doing it week after week after week, plus the registration fees and all the equipment. And as my kid continues to get older or the regulations change, the bat that I had last year, I can't use it this year. There's all these different things that are going into it that start to price you out of the game and especially kids of color. So through the Players Alliance, through CBA, we just want to continue to provide opportunities for you to stay in the game if you want to play the game. And I think that's one of the things that we have to remind ourselves of. If you want to play the game, it doesn't mean it has to be at the high level. You should still have an opportunity to play this game. Tell me also about the Grandkids Foundation in your name. The Grandkids Foundation, we started in 2007 when I was playing in Detroit. At that time, the high school graduation rate was only at 50%. And baseball was the vehicle that had gotten me to a point where I started to make a name for myself. So I wanted to use those two things to try to get back to the community to help in those areas. We then partnered with Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign in 2008, I think it was, to help fight childhood obesity. We then added... uh, food insecure issues, doing things with the Greater Chicago Food Depository, the Northern Illinois Food Bank, No Kid Hungry, Food Bank in New York, a bunch of different ways just to continue to make sure that individuals have meals. Uh, You start to think about how grumpy and how frustrated your day is when you skip breakfast or you don't get lunch. There's a lot of people in this country that still just don't know where their next meal is coming from. So we try to provide those different areas there. With the help of Mariano's, you know, local grocery store chain here in the Chicagoland area in the month of November, which is our grand giving month at the counters. And when you're checking out, you get a chance to donate and all the proceeds. Again, go help the Greater Chicago Food Depository and the Northern Illinois Food Bank. And grandkids, it's amazing to see that it's been going on for as long as it has been. Uh, we've been able to help out in a number of different ways, and hopefully we'll continue to keep doing that. Speaking of kids... There's a few in your life today. I'm going to guess that fatherhood really agrees with you. It's been cool. You know, I never expected <laughs> uh, to, to, to be in it, but I'm glad I get a chance to do it now. You know, I have a little bit more time uh, to be in it and enjoy that side of it and, and everything I've learned from my dad and all the other dads that have been around me to kind of take that to my family and enjoy it. So we're, we're having fun with it and all the different things that I was looking forward to enjoying, I get a chance to enjoy it with them. Have you considered what life is on the horizon for Curtis Granderson? Because you're only in your early 40s. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people forget. You know, you're going to be a non-baseball player more than you've been a baseball player, no matter how you look at it. I mean, even if I wanted to continue to keep trying to play at some point, they're not going to let me come back. It's going to be time to hang it up. So I definitely want to stay involved in the game in some form or fashion. I, I just feel like it did so much for me, and hopefully it can do that for other people. And again, it's not just making it to the major leagues, just the number of doors that it opened up for me that I want to make sure that a number of individuals realize and have access to. I enjoy doing the broadcast. It's been great. The nonprofit stuff has been exciting. So those have been some of the things in the future side of it. I've, I've been rumored in a lot of different things that I know absolutely I do not want to do. Politics being one of them, especially if you're here in Chicago, you know how difficult that can be. And then I've been rumored in to be managers of two different teams, both the White Sox and the Mets. And I've said this publicly a lot that I do not want to coach, but somehow <laughs> I still end up on this radar list. Um, so I appreciate people considering me in that that aspect, but from the amount of time required to be a solid coach or manager at the professional level, it's just way more than I'm ready to, to to spend in that regard. And there's so many other things I'd want to do that I wouldn't be able to do if I was managing and coaching, especially at the major league level. So it's safe to assume we will never hear the title Mayor Curtis Granderson. Oh, that yeah, you can you can bet it. That, that's <laughs> not, that's no chance at all. Because the issue for me is there's two sides of it. One if there's things I want to do, I just want to be able to do it. I don't want to have to go through a lot of hoops and channels and have to owe this person or agree to this person to do some of the stuff I want. And two, I just don't want them digging through my background and finding out what I did back in eighth grade or my freshman year of high school and pulling that up and having it splash all over the TV. Because I know I did something and I know somebody's going to find it. And I'm like, oh, and then I got to try to explain, well, I didn't really do that. I was doing this. So I, I, you know, I, I don't want that stuff to happen as well. I ask this final question to all my guests. If not for baseball, what would you have been? It would have been a combination of things, I think. Um, I enjoyed education, so I think I could have possibly been a teacher. But at the university level, I didn't want to deal with parents. and I, I like that side of, of the schooling. And now you're in a spot where most students, if they're in your classroom, they're there because they selected that classroom. This is the class that they want to take. So I like that side of it. And I also like the sports marketing. You know, I'm really into a, about how do you grow and how do you make this game exciting, whether that's from the individual, you know, how do you put that star player like Otani we mentioned or like a Mookie Betts or an Aaron Judge out there for the world to see and for the young kids to go, wow, that kid where or this player, where's my number? Or, you know, I love that player because they do this. You know, I, I was all about that because, you know, being here in Chicago, we all wanted to be like Mike, you know, Michael Jordan. And I thought that the NBA, Nike, Gatorade all did such an amazing job making sure you knew who he was. And I think that's why basketball is in the shape that it's in. And I feel like baseball could be in a very similar space, but that's one of the challenges that we're still facing right now, that that star player or those star players just aren't getting put out there at the volume, at the rate that I think they could, that won't take away from their playing career, that won't take away from their time, but they just can organically be constantly a person that somebody goes wow i really like that individual i want to see them i want to buy their jersey i want to know more about them and i want to learn more about this game so i think it would have been something in that aspect and i probably would have been able to do both of it well i gotta tell you this has been an absolute delight i love talking to people who grew up here and especially ones who still live in the area 
You remain a credit to the game of baseball. And I mentioned, if you ever decide to make a comeback, the Cubs and White Sox certainly could use another bat with power. Continued success. And thank you, Curtis Granderson, for telling me a story I don't know. Thank you. And thank you for having me. My thanks to MLB.com, the Yes Network, SNY, WGN-TV, the Softball Hall of Fame, ESPN 1000, and the UIC Commencement 2019 for those wonderful highlights. And my thanks as always to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. T.J. Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports. And to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.